works, Travis. Mike just goes right on. <clears throat> anyway, we are in Luke 22 this morning. If you will, find your way over to Luke chapter 22. Um, we're going to be in verse 14 to get started. Uh, and as you headed that way, let me ask you this. What do you think of when you hear the word souvenir? You got something in your head. Ruth's already got something in her head. I can see that. Uh, you know, in our culture, the term souvenir usually leads us to have this idea of something plastic and cheap and worthless that you sell to tourists and they go home with, right? It's, uh, if you go to Hawaii, right, you might come back with a brightly colored lei around your neck or the hula dancer that you stick on your car and is obnoxious from that day forward. Uh, something like that. And, and like I said, we tend to think of the term souvenir as referring to worthless throwaway items. And here's the reality, though. The, the term souvenir is a French word, and it does not mean cheesy plastic trinket. It's a, a verb that means simply to remember. To remember. Um, that's it. And, and so the idea of any souvenir, then, is, is to remind the one who possesses it of a place they have been, of a, a person that they have known, or an experience that they have had. It, it's a touchable, tangible way to remember something. And, and this idea of souvenir, this idea of remembering, uh, this has actually been a significant thing in the history of, of God's people, right? In the history of redemption. Uh, uh, an important concept for God's people. In, in Deuteronomy 6.12, God's people are reminded to take care lest they forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so here is God instructing his people to, to celebrate a special feast, which was called the Passover. And th this feast was about remembrance. It's about remembering that they were once slaves in Egypt, about remembering how God did these mighty miracles uh, to lead them out of that, to, to deliver them. The, the Passover meal in fact, remember the final plague where, where, where God sent an angel to kill the firstborn male of every house in Egypt and, and to protect the Israelite families. The angel was given these really specific instructions. Here's how I want you to go about that. And, and the Jewish people were also given specific instructions that they were to obey of the Lord. And they were told, <clears throat> sacrifice a lamb, kill it. Take the blood from that lamb, and you're to put it above your doorpost, right? Smear it on your doorpost uh, outside of their home. And then when the angel of death comes, it comes to the door, right? And if the blood of the lamb is there, it was to skip over, or another word for it is to pass over. Uh, that's where the term comes from, and they go to the next one. And from that day forward, God's people uh, celebrated with a meal so that they would remember the way that God had mercifully delivered them from, from the Egyptians. Now, it's fitting, very fitting, that Jesus uses the Passover meal of remembrance to institute, to, to begin what's going to be this, this ongoing, this perpetual sacrament for the people of God, for the church, for Christ's bride. Um, now, the Lord's Supper, then, is in, in the purest sense of the word, is indeed a souvenir. It leads us to remember what Christ has done for us. But unlike every other souvenir you've ever brought home from anywhere, it also benefits those who participate in it far beyond just a mere remembering. So let's, let's read the passage. I know it's a bit of an introduction. Let's read the passage, uh, and, and then we'll dig into it. We're beginning in verse 14 of Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> and when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to stop right there. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is nothing that we have come up with. Uh, it was instituted by Christ our Lord, and we desire to understand it better. We desire to really understand this passage where it is first instituted. And so we ask that you would enlighten our minds this morning as we look to your word, seeking understanding. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so in this passage, Jesus begins with what we refer to as communion, what we call the Lord's Supper. This, this sacrament, this holy ordinance instituted by Christ was first recorded by the early, as the early church partook uh, in Acts 2.42, just referred to as the breaking of the bread there. Uh, and then by Acts 20, verse 7, Paul is administering the Lord's Supper to the church in Troas on, on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, Sunday, as we, we think of it. Uh, and this sacrament is, is discussed in great detail in 1 Corinthians 10, and for, and for, and chapter 10 and chapter 11. And, and, and there's a lot of information on this. And yet, before all that, it's Jesus who graciously gives to us, to his bride, the church, the nourishing sacrament to participate in un until he returns. And, and so that's where we're going to be focusing on this, this morning. I mean, this will not be the massive, all-encompassing, everything you've ever wanted to know uh, about the Lord's Supper kind of thing, because you, you could not do it in the time period we have this morning. <clears throat> so we're going to focus in on this, and then we'll pull in a little bit from other places. Uh, now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that Verse 14 is that the time has come for Jesus to do what he's come to do. Now listen to the way John puts it in John 13, 1. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But before his betrayal, before his surrender, before his trial, before his, his execution, before his, his resurrection, before all that, Jesus partakes in this Passover feast with his apostles. And, and it goes on to explain this, right? They recline at the table. Uh, now, this table is different than the way we think of a table. It's uh, low to the ground, sometimes on the ground. Uh, and they would lean in on their left elbow with their feet away from their table and their head towards it, and they'd eat with their right hand. That was the way to do it. I tried doing that at a picnic sometime. I, we don't find it very comfortable, but that's the way they ate, ate their meals around a table, uh, which tells us one thing, that Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting is nowhere close, not even remotely close to what, what the situation would have looked like. Um, but you probably knew that. Uh, so anyway, they, they, they partake in this lamb, uh, in the, uh, they partake in lamb, they also were eating bitter herbs, and these bitter herbs were designed to help them remember the bitter time of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they would eat unleavened bread that symbolized the way they had to rush out of there real, real quick on the night of the Exodus, and, and they drank four cups of wine, <clears throat> uh, one for each of the I will statements that, that God spoke in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. I'll read that. There God says, I am the Lord, and... I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments, and 
I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And, and, and that's what each one of those were representing there. So, so the Passover then is, is remembering what, what God in his, has graciously done for his people. Uh, here in verse 15, Jesus tells us how earnestly he desires to have this meal with his apostles. And I don't want us to pass this too quickly. You understand the, the love he has for these, uh, his apostles here, that, that he wants to spend his time with them. Uh, he also wants to tell them here, right, that he's, his time to suffer is coming. And I, you don't get the idea that they still understand quite what that's going to mean, and, and partially because of the way things go in the future. But, but he keeps telling them, like, suffering's coming, and he does it again uh, here. And, and, and with that, you get the sense, though, that that Jesus is beginning to really start to feel the weight of what he's actually come to accomplish, what, you know, uh, what, what he's come in the flesh to do. And in verses 16 then, he says, he won't eat this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. What's that mean? You see, first of all, in those days, sometimes this term until is used to mean never again. And I know that sounds weird to us. Let me give you a biblical example of that. First uh, Samuel 15, 35 uh, we read, read there, and here's a, a quote, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Now, that doesn't mean that on the day of Samuel's death, or Saul's death, he happened to see him. Oh, there he is, and that's the day he died. Uh, what it means is that he never saw, that Samuel never saw Saul again and, until, he, uh, ever again, right? He died before he ever saw him again. And, and, and that's the sense that Jesus is saying, this was the last time we're going to partake of this meal together here, this Passover meal. Now, in verse 17, there's a cup of wine that he divides among the apostles. And in this passage, there's, there's two cups. This is the first cup. Uh, this is still part of the Passover meal. Not sure which cup of the four that it is, but it's one of those four cups of wine that's mentioned earlier. Uh, in, in other words, this, this first cup here is, is not yet the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's just participation in, in the Passover meal. And, and, and the actual institution begins in verse 19 with the bread. But, but here in verse 18, Jesus, you know, very similar to what he said in verse 16, for, for he says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There, there is this future anticipation that, that Jesus is pointing forward to here. Uh, and there always is. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, right, there's this future in anticipation, uh, right? We're remembering backwards of what Christ has done for us, and we're looking forward to, to, to his return. That's, that's why we, we say uh, aloud, right, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. That's that forward-looking. Now, most likely, Jesus in this moment is looking forward to this, this banquet that he has promised to share with us in the, in the ages to come. Uh, it's what's often called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you want to learn more about that, you can look in Revelation 19.6. I'll, I'll read you one aspect of that. Uh, this is a quote from Revelation 19.6. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then verse 9, just a few later, um, we read, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To those whose faith is in Christ, that's, that's who's invited to that. And, and, and then in verse 19 of our passage today, Jesus makes this transition from the Passover feast to establishing the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. 
uh, F.W. Kumacher, I'm sure I pronounced that right because I always pronounce names right, right? Um, anyway, he beautifully compares this meal to watching a blossom on, on an apple tree actually transform into a glorious apple. That, that's what he's saying here, right? As, as this meal that remembered something in the Old Testament is to transform into the sacrament for the church going forward. And, and what we see from this point forward is that, that Jesus is interpreting his death in this Passover context. And in fact, that's why Paul later in 1 Corinthians 5-7 so clearly states, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, and we're seeing his death through that lens. Now, now Jesus fulfills the Passover, and, and, and we now learn that the sacrament is to consist of two elements. You know these already, right? They consist of bread and consist of wine. Those are the two elements. Now, uh, first let's consider the, the bread here. One, one important observation here is, is that in the Passover meal, people always ate bread. It was always part of it. There's nothing new there except for one little thing that Jesus does with the bread here. <clears throat> and that's when he adds this idea of breaking it, right? Of breaking the bread. Look at verse 19. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Broken. Now when Jesus says, this is my body, um, does that mean that he is literally serving human flesh to them at this point? Uh, hopefully you know the answer. Of course not. That's not what's going on. And, and yet, uh, I feel like it's worth mentioning because it's such a widely uh, understood aspect, but it's a false teaching of Roman Catholicism. And the reason they get it wrong is uh, <clears throat> they wrongly teach that this bread becomes literal flesh of, of Jesus and the wine becomes a literal, wine, literal blood of Jesus. <clears throat> and, and it misses this idea that, that Jesus often speech, uh, speaks in figures of speech. Right? In, in, in John 10.9, when Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't mean he's a literal door with hinges on it, right? That's a spiritual statement. When he says in John 6.35, that I am the bread, no one thought that he had become literally a, a loaf of bread right there before them. When, when Jesus says here that the, the bread is his body, he means it symbolizes his body. We spiritually feast on Jesus for spiritual nourishment. That Jesus' body is broken, then, is, is this fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5, which, which points forward to Jesus when it says, He was crushed for our iniquities. We, we also see here in verse 19 uh, that His body is given for you. In, in other words, Jesus is saying that, that His body on the cross is, is receiving the wrath of God, and, and, and in that case, He is a substitute for you who have faith in Him. A substitute for you. Christian, do you understand that Jesus died in your place? It should have been me and you upon the cross and with the wrath of God poured out on us. It should have been us that had that wrath, but it was Jesus in our place. When, <clears throat> when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it may be helpful sometimes to remind yourself just by simply saying internally or out loud if you want to, Jesus died for me. That's the reality, because it should be you, it should be me, but if your faith is in Christ, then Jesus died for me. Now let's look at the cup in verse 20. Here, our Lord says, this cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood, is, is the new covenant in my blood. So just like the bread symbolizes Christ's body, the cup symbolizes Christ's blood. Now, it's interesting, 
<clears throat> I find it interesting, hopefully you'll find it interesting, the, the terms body and, body and blood actually show up together fairly often in the, in the Old Testament scriptures uh, and the New Testament, if you include you know, Hebrews, and you do include Hebrews. Uh, in every instance, it's a reference to a sacrifice. Every time we see this body and, and blood together, it's referencing a sacrifice. According to Jesus, the pouring out of his own blood is a sacrifice that is establishing a new covenant. Remember uh, that idea of a covenant, right? It's a, a bond in blood, a formal commitment that God makes. And, and, and covenants were always ratified with a sacrifice, always in the Old Testament. Like, like in Exodus 24, uh, there God makes a covenant with his people through Moses. <clears throat> and if you haven't read this before, it's going to sound weird to you. Just tip you off that way. Uh, anyway, Moses makes this altar and they sacrifice all these animals, right? And part of that sacrifice is the blood is coming out of those, those animals. And they collect it in these big, huge basins. And so they just have basins full of blood. And again, this is really gross. But Moses takes half of that and it's taken and thrown up on the altar, right? Uh, that's where half of it goes. And the other half of it, in, in Exodus 24, 8, Moses says, Behold, the blood of the covenant uh, that, is, that is made, or sorry, uh, the other half of the blood is actually thrown on the people. Right? Don't picture it slung, but it would have come around and thrown it on the people. You're being covered in, in blood, and there's a purpose for this. Exodus 24, 8, Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. You see, establishing a covenant is, is a bloody mess. And, and, and the blood on the people was showing this to them. It was showing that you're included in this covenant. The, the blood of the covenant is on, on you. Um, they were included in it. And so in our passage, passage Jesus <clears throat> is speaking of a new covenant. And, and this new covenant prophesies in Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah 31, 31, when, when God makes this promise saying, Behold, the days are coming uh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel in the house of Israel. And, and then a few verses later in Jeremiah 31, 34, he says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, I do want you to understand this. The, the old covenant was a covenant of grace as well. But, it, but it's always looking forward. It's always looking to the time when God would fulfill all the promises of salvation, which include the promise to forgive all of our sins forever. But, but it's looking forward, right? That's where it's looking. Um, that is until the cross, when, when Jesus is the sacrifice. And, and hopefully then, as you begin to understand this, you begin to understand uh, the way that the, the apostles would have heard the fulfillment of all of that in, in this moment when Jesus says this. Listen again to verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And it's massive for them. I mean, What's new about this covenant, right? And, and you could go on forever, so many things. But foundationally, Jesus says it's new because it's established not by the blood of a bunch of animals. It, it's established by his own blood. It's established by the blood of God. 1,500 years of animal sacrifices were preparing God's people to understand what, what Jesus comes and does upon the cross as a sacrifice. And so Jesus' point here is, is listen, it's, it's not the blood of animals, it's my blood that will establish the new covenant. It is my blood that will atone for your sins. It is my blood that will obtain your salvation. That's the point here. Now, I want to take a little rabbit tra here, trail here for a minute because... Uh, 
In the providence of God, someone, and I don't remember who, or I'd give you credit right now, but someone pointed out at the men's Bible study last week um, that in Acts 5, as the, as the chief priests, they're so upset. The apostles are preaching the gospel, uh, and they were told not to do this, and then they go and do it again. And anyway, they end up back in front of these people, uh, in front of the, the chief priests in this, this committee, this council. And, and one of the priests in Acts 5.28 says this. He says, we strictly charged you <clears throat> not to teach in this name, and yet you, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And listen to this. You intend to bring this man, Jesus, right? You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That, that last bit, think of this in terms of the establishment of a covenant, right? Moses threw the blood on, of the sacrifice upon the people as a way of showing that they are in the new covenant. And here the priests don't even realize what they're saying here, but they're saying to the apostles, you intend to bring Jesus' blood upon us. Right? And the obvious thing is absolutely they do. That is absolutely their, their hope and their goal. That's why they're preaching the gospel. That's why every one of us proclaims the gospel. We intend, we hope to bring the blood of Christ upon sinners like us because that is the only way that anyone's ever going to be forgiven of our sin is that we are in that covenant, that we are covered by the blood of Christ. I love it when I see things like that that, that come up. Anyway, so, so all that Jesus asked then of us is to believe on him with the faith that he gives. Now that technically brings us to the end of our passage here, but before we finish today, I do want to mention just a few more insights regarding the Lord's Supper. The first one is just a few different views, and again, this is like a Twitter version of it, you know, whatever, 144 characters, whatever, you know, tiny little thing, meaning you could explain this and it would take a lot of time, but the first one's this, um, there's the Roman Catholic view that wrongly teaches that the bread and the wine actually become the blood of Christ, and, and they have this idea that in the actual sacrament, in the bread, in the wine, is, is grace. And, and, and so they teach this idea that the more you take this, the more grace you have, and that's how you actually receive grace. That's not a right view. You won't find that in Scripture. Uh, Lutherans believe that <clears throat> Christ isn't in the elements themselves, right? But, but they put it this way, that he's in, with, and, and under the elements. So kind of this nebulous all around the bread and the wine uh, and but they view it so closely tied to the to the elements that you'll notice that if you've ever been in a Lutheran church uh, they treat the bread and the wine in this this extreme reverence like it's God himself and and uh, I won't say that much but but it's awfully close to that that way of, of viewing it um, then you get to what is the uh, the most common view of Baptist non-denominational churches uh, just general evangelicalism in, in general. And it's this idea that the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a remembrance of Jesus. That, that's it. We do it because it kind of reminds us of what, what Jesus has done. Kind of in the way that you say, like, um, like eating a pecan pie makes me think of my grandma. And that's good because I think of my grandma. Um, but that's it. There, there's nothing more to it. And, and of course, um, I presented these in ways that, you know, not fully formed or if that's your view, you probably are like, there's more to it than that. Anyway, um, as Reformed Presbyterians, we, we believe that the supper is a sacred thing for us to participate in. Our, our conviction is that the bread does remain just bread, that the wine remains just wine. We, we absolutely do remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins and everything else around that, right? His resurrection. Uh, but it's more than that. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we read, the, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
As we participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is spiritually present here, right? In a very real and unique way, such that we do feed on him, not physically, not like cannibals, but, but spiritually, <clears throat> so that when we partake in communion, we are spiritually nourished and, and strengthened, even renewed, okay? And, and if that all sounds weird to you, ask me some questions later, because it's, it's a lot to try to cover in a tiny little thing. Um, the second insight is this, that the Lord's Supper is always done in the presence of community. Always. You, you can go into your closet and pray alone with God. You can go out in a field and look over the, the river and, and read the word alone with God. Um, it's not the only way to do those things, but that. Uh, but you cannot partake in the Lord's Supper alone. Th- this aspect helps us see that we are, when we are united to Christ, right, through the blood of Christ, we are also united to each other. There's no way around that, right? That's one of the reasons we do the Lord's Supper we do, where we circle up, and you can see the people next to you and across from you, and you get this sense of community, not just me alone in my chair partaking it, but us taking part of this together. Uh, and it helps us to remember, right, that it's not just that, it's not that I am the body of the Christ, it's not that you are the body of the Christ, it's that we, all of us together, are the body of Christ. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Uh, that's the one Rodney just wants to explore like crazy, right? No? You're just, you're just staring at me right now. Okay, uh, one last thing today. When, when Christ summons us in, in this text to do this in remembrance of, of me, or of him, it's not to remember as though we had forgotten the event, right? It's, and I, would just, I want you to understand how we understand this remember, right? Because surely you don't walk in here each Lord's Day and, and hear the gospel and think, wow, I never, that's new. When, how come he's never said that before, uh, right? If, if you do that, there's some medical condition you've got to get checked out because you really have a memory issue, uh, but, but if you're like me, you do come in here to worship sometimes with, with lingering unbelief, with ungratefulness, with lack of faith, and at times with a failure to have in the forefront of your mind the reality that God is real, that life is short, and, and the relief that your sins really are forgiven in Christ. And all that that means for all the other problems and stresses and, and anxieties and things going on in the world, all that stuff, that this is reality. Somewhere during the week, we often do forget that we belong to Christ, that we are loved by Jesus, that God himself has made a covenant with us, a promise to be our God, that, that, that he would be a covenant keeper who will always keep his promise. See, at times during the week, we forget how much we desire to be holy as he is holy, or our failure to obey God's word has, has left us feeling like these, these objects of, of God's disdain instead of uh, objects of his deep love, sacrificial love. And, and so this remembrance is, is not about remembering information. It's about renewed and strengthened faith as, as we are reminded of the great love that Christ has for his, his bride, the church, It's not because you're worthy that you get to come to the table. None of us are. But, but, but because the one who invites you is himself worthy, and he has declared you worthy, and he has made you worthy by his death on the cross in your place. And this is an important distinction, and, and uh, 
And I, I will say for me personally, and I think it's probably wider than that, because when I first believed the gospel, it was in a church that viewed the Lord's Supper a little different. It was, it was done once a month, and we were asked, examine yourself. And the idea that was, was, was taught there was, uh, it was like a monthly review to look back and say, have I been good enough this week, right, or this, this month? Have I, do I have a right to partake in the Lord's Supper this month? Uh, this time, and it caused so much internal fear and anxiety, and, and there was this idea that if I did it, and, and there were like sins that I'd failed to like even know to repent of, or if I just wasn't good enough, that somehow that was, that was bad for me, that, you know, God might smite me or something like that, and it caused this internal fear and anxiety, and the whole experience was so stressful that I honest, honestly, I know people complain when it's, when it's that way, like, oh, that's the long Sunday, right? Oh, this is the long one. Um, but, but for me, it was like, oh, we've got to do this again. And I just, I couldn't find joy or encouragement in it at all. I would sit and think in my head, you know what? I, I treated my mom terribly this week. Or, uh, I, I lusted in my heart this week. I, I know I gossiped, and I, I was completely dishonest with my teacher, with the excuses I was given. And, and then I would think to myself, I, I simply cannot partake in the Lord's Supper today, right? Because God will smite me. Uh, I have not been holy enough for this. Now, now the reason for administering the Lord's this way was not malicious. It was because of a misunderstanding of the warning given in 1 Corinthians 11, 27-30. And it says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not a warning that some amount of sin this week might make you unworthy to come to the table. It is a, a warning to examine your heart, right? Where, where is it focused? To, to remember again that we are sinners, to, to see our failures so that we come to the one as one, uh, that we come to Christ as someone who is absolutely in need, one who sees his or her sin and confesses it, and who is looking to Jesus for the forgiveness of that actual sin. And so the question to ask as, as you examine yourself is not, have I been good enough this week to come to the table, right? There, there's a time for that evaluating your life. In fact, the time of confession in our service is that time to think back on your week and confess your sins, come absolutely clean with God, knowing that, that he is willing and, and, and he will forgive us because of Christ. But, but at the Lord's Supper, right, we, we are... We, we are in, in, we're examining ourselves in a different way. We're, we want to be asking, do I contritely know that I am indeed a sinner? Do I know Jesus? Do I know that he has died for my sin? Is my faith in Jesus? If your answer is yes, then come to the table and be spiritually fed and nourished. Now, now the Heidelberg Catechism says it way better than me. Qu question 81 asks this question, who should come to the Lord's Supper? Or the Lord's table. Uh, here's the answer. <clears throat> Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ, and who also desire more and more <clears throat> to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. And so when you prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, do consider your sin. Now understand how terrible it is, how you deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on you for it, but do not stop there. Don't let that be the end of your, your thinking. 
Uh, keep going until you reach the good news of the gospel. Consider your Savior who died in your place, who died for your sin, and know that God loves you and means to encourage and strengthen and nourish your faith this morning as we partake in this holy sacrament together. Now again, the Lord's Supper is such a massive topic that you can't even begin to really, really unpack it all in a, in a setting like this on a Sunday morning. Um, in the email this week, I will send out a few links that go to uh, our doctrinal statement, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith and the, the Longer Catechism, the Shorter Catechism. Uh, I'll include that in there, and, and I really encourage you, take some time to go and read that. Uh, it, it'll give a more rounded-out understanding of the Lord's Supper. Um, let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord, the grace you show us in the gospel it's just amazing. So rarely do we really comprehend it, Lord. We're so distracted by everything else going in the world that we don't often think about the wrath of God that our sin deserves. And so we don't often marvel at your grace and your death on the cross your blood being shed and your body broken so that the wrath of God is not poured out on us. Lord, we thank you for your righteousness. Uh, we thank you for your love. Um, Lord, we thank you for filling us with the Holy Spirit, for, for giving us the sacrament to participate in each Lord's Day. And, and as we remember Christ and his death and his resurrection and as we continue to eagerly await the glorious wedding feast of the Lamb, Lord, we, we do so with joy and we thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.